Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Welcome. We're glad that you are here to celebrate Good Friday with us. As we consider Good Friday, I'd like you to just take a moment and, and really uh, think about that, that scene at the Last Supper. And, and, and Jesus is sitting there uh, with his disciples. The Passover meal is over, and yet he takes at the end of this meal a piece of bread. Um, and again, if you do further studies on it, it was a significant piece of bread in the Passover story. Uh, and, and when he took that and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he picks up a cup of wine again, a very significant cup in the Passover celebration. It says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The body and the blood of Jesus. His body would soon be beaten to an unrecognizable pulp. His blood flowing from his wounds would soon run down the cross into the ground below. This is what we've gathered to remember. In fact, we haven't simply gathered to remember it. We've gathered to celebrate it. It seems strange, doesn't it? you imagine being invited to a, to a social club? You know, you have your friends in, in a club in town, and they say, you know, uh, we really want you to come to this special meeting we're going to have. And it's this day that we remember that our, that our founder was murdered. And we're going to celebrate the, the, the murder of our founder. We're going to celebrate the beating that he took and the way that he died. It seems rather strange, and and maybe even inappropriate. And yet, for us as Christians, without this sacrifice, without these wounds, without this death, we would have nothing to celebrate. And so as strange as it seems and and, and odd as it seems to celebrate somebody's murder, somebody's death, somebody's suffering, that's what we're here to celebrate because of what it accomplished for us. So let's just pray together. And then we'll get right into the word. Father, just thank you for your great love. Thank you for the fact that we can come here today, that we can celebrate what Jesus accomplished for us. Thank you for his suffering. Thank you for the fact that that suffering took the penalty that we deserve. So Father, today I just want to thank you that we can, we can join together and to say thank you to you for what you have accomplished on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sunday, as as Doug was speaking through Hebrews chapter 8, he reminded us of the new covenant that was coming. And here Jesus speaks of it at the end of his meal with his disciples. Doug told us of the exciting transformation that this new covenant would offer, and he reminded us of the fact that through this covenant, God would offer complete forgiveness of sins. Today, what we want to look at with you is the cost of this covenant. For us, entering into the covenant, it requires nothing. It is a free gift. But for God, entering this covenant cost him a great deal. So this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9. And and as we look at that, I want you to stop and consider the separation that this covenant repaired, the sacrifice 
that the covenant required, and then the satisfaction that this covenant brings. And so let's begin by looking at the separation. We're going to read the first uh, 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 9. It'll be up there on the screen. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open it. Your phone, just open that app as well, and I will read this for you. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there were, lampstand, there were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sin of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So in Hebrews chapter 8, the, the writer has just finished describing the amazing realities of the new covenant. And then in chapter 9, he jumps back to the sobering realities of the old covenant. In verse 1, we see the fact that there, there was a specific place that people had to worship. It was the tabernacle. When Moses received the law, he was given instructions for building the tabernacle. And basically, it was a rectangular tent where people would bring their sacrifice for, for sin and their offerings for their praise and thanksgiving. Verse 2 begins with the sobering reminder of the realities of the Old Covenant. Yes, there was a place of worship. Yes, there was a place to offer sacrifice. But even this location provided a constant remember, reminder of the separation that existed between God and man and that exists between God and man. You see, beginning in chapter, Genesis chapter 3 and through the rest of Scripture, we see the reality of the fact that sin separates us from God. Adam and Eve, when they were in the Garden of Eden, were, were in perfect fellowship with God until they chose to eat the fruit and to disobey God. And the moment they did that, the Bible says their eyes were opened and they, they knew good and evil. They knew they had done wrong. And the Bible tells us a little further on that they heard God walking in the cool of garden. And instead of running to him, instead of running to enjoy the fellowship that they have with him, they, they hid. They tried to hide from God because now they had sinned. Now, instead of running to him for fellowship, they hid from him because of the judgment that they deserved. The book of Isaiah also says this, but your, sin, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Again, sin separates us. Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus, John 3.18, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Sin separates us from God. The tabernacle, even though it was a place of worship, even though it was a place of sacrifice, was a constant reminder of that separation. 
Quickly, I want to show you a very basic layout of the temple. Um, I tried to get a professional picture of the tabernacle, and I found one, and it was really cool, really well diagrammed. And I went on to make sure that the licensing was okay, and I hit a couple buttons, and they wanted $775 for me to use this slide for like three seconds. And so I thought being new here, maybe spending $775 on one picture wasn't a great idea. Um, so uh, I, I did a little cheap diagram up on PowerPoint. So it's not professional by any means, but it saved you a lot of money, all right? So the tabernacle was a long, a long rectangle. Moses had received these instructions. The, the perimeter fence, uh, the, the yellow line, it, it was, it was a, sort of an uncovered area, but it was certainly set off the tabernacle from the rest of the camp of the Israelites. And in the outer court, the outer court was the area that all Jews were allowed to enter. And Cedric, if I could just get you to bring up the next one, thanks. I, uh, I kind of didn't need to put that first one there. Um, the outer court, all Jews were able to, to come into that outer court. There they would bring their sacrifice, and there the priest would offer the sacrifice for their sins. And then as you travel back into the, into the tabernacle, there's the holy place. And here in the holy place, there's, there's some really, really neat things in there. There's the table of showbread with the bread on it. There's the golden lampstand. And again, if we had the time, we could really dig into those and talk about the fact how they represent Christ, the bread of life and the light of the world. So many neat things. If you have the time to study even the settings of the tabernacle, take the time to do that. And, and it's just so cool how they point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in that holy place, all Jews were not now allowed in. Only the priests were allowed in to this holy place. And they would come in daily and do the duties of the priests, and, and that was the, the area that they were allowed into. And then, once a year, and only once a year, the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies. And we talked about that in, in Hebrews chapter 7 just a couple of weeks ago. And this was a very sober time. This was a time where if he went into that, to that holy of holies and was found to be impure, he would immediately face God's judgment. He would be put to death. If anybody just kind of wandered in, you know, if you're a curious person, and you're like, oh, I wonder what's in that holy of holies, you know, and you pop your head in, or you're done. Because not, you were not allowed into the presence of God. And so even this place of worship, even this place of sacrifice, was a constant reminder to people that there was, there was a separation between them and God. There was a constant reminder to people that they were not, they did not have access to God's presence. And then we can see another shortcoming in Hebrews uh, 9, verse 9 and 10. And it says this, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drinks of various, and various washings, regulation for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So under this old covenant, it was impossible to have a clear conscience before God. The gifts and the sacrifices were constant. The ceremonial rituals for cleansing were ongoing. The tabernacle was always a reminder that you fell short of being welcomed into God's presence. This was a shortcoming of the Levitical system. Even if someone tried their hardest to keep the law, even if someone did everything they could to keep the law, the book of James says that if you kept the whole law but offended in one way, you're guilty of the whole thing. 
This constant reminder of our shortcoming, this, this constant reminder of our inability to provide our own access into God's presence. It really seems grim, doesn't it? It really seems grim. Could you imagine the frustration of daily, what have I done? What do I need to sacrifice for? What have I missed? And just constantly, you know, what, where, where do I deserve God's judgment? And constantly evaluating that, constantly not sure if you are right with God. But at the end of this grim news, at the end of this verse, there's these uh, five little words. Until the time of reformation. So there's the reality of the separation of sin, but then the writer says, hey, there was a time of reformation coming. The word reformation means setting things to right. And it carries with the idea of of resetting a a broken bone, realigning things. When I was in late junior high or early senior high, I can't remember, went to Christian school for the first 11 years, and so it just kind of all runs together. Um, But late junior high, early senior high, there was four or five of us, and we were down in the gym in the the school, and uh, we had a springboard, and we had some mats, and the mats were up against the wall. And then against the wall, there was this, this sort of climbing apparatus with the chin-up bar at the top and just some metal rungs uh, all the way up. So we were just being, being guys and jumping, doing some flips. And one of our, one of our friends, he went and he kind of went a little longer than he should have. And as he flipped, you could hear, you know, his arm swing and you could hear this ting, you know, of his arm against the metal bar. And you're just like, eh, you know, that probably hurt. And he, he sits there, and he's holding his arm, and he's kind of rocking back and forth. And he's like, guys, I, I think I broke my arm. I was a little bit cynical. I'm like, what do you mean you broke your arm? You just hit it on the monkey bar, you know? Very compassionate, right? And so, and so he, he, he's sitting there, and then he holds his arm up. And, and it looked pretty good from his elbow to about midway down his forearm. Things looked fairly normal. But then from the second half of his forearm to his wrist, you know how it's supposed to be a nice straight line? Well, about here, all of a sudden his arm veered up to a 30, 30 degree angle. You know, he just snapped the bone clean in half. And we're like, oh yeah, you, you did break that. We, we, we better get you some help. Um, I kind of felt bad for, you know, criticizing him a little bit. And uh, thankfully, he gets medical care. He goes to the doctor, and I'm so glad I wasn't in the room for this, but the doctor resets the bone. You know, he realigns the bone, puts it back in the way that it was supposed to be, and then had the cast on, and and then uh, the bone was healed. The old covenant needed a reset. The old covenant needed uh, something to, to align us with God. Again, it wasn't like God in heaven set up this Levitical priesthood and tested it out and said, hmm, I wonder how this is gonna work. And then partway through goes, ooh, nobody's meeting up to this standard. I have to think of something new. It wasn't that. The old covenant was never intended to be permanent. The old covenant was never supposed to be the way for us to be made right with God. The old covenant was always meant to be a picture of what was coming in the new covenant, what was coming with this time of reformation. And one of the requirements of this new covenant was a perfect sacrifice. And so let's take a look, Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, and I'll just read down uh, through those verses. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have, t- that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for, for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That final once-for-all sacrifice is what we have gathered to celebrate here today. The sacrifice was not an animal, it was not a lamb, but it was, as John the Baptist said of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of the Old Covenant was symbolic of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who would once for all take away the sin of the world. Thousands of lambs have been sacrificed from the time of the initiation of the Old Covenant and, uh, until the death of Jesus on the cross. His death established the new covenant. His his death accomplished what no other sacrifice ever could. His death, according to verse 14, is able to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So practically speaking, what does that mean? How how does that, that play out? How many of us know Christ as Savior and yet struggle with this idea, do I really have a, a perfected conscience? Is my conscience really purified, and, and what are the basis for that? And I want to take you, I want to look at a couple different passages of Scripture, a couple of my favorite passages of Scripture as we consider Good Friday, the sacrifice of Jesus. I want you to look at, at what happened um, on the cross, and then I want you to see what happens when we place our faith and trust in what Christ accomplished for us. So the first verse is Colossians chapter 2, or the first passage, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So this first concept that we need to understand, this first thing that we need to understand about the sacrifice of Jesus is this, that he has forgiven us all of our trespasses. I want you just to think about your life. Think about that, that sin in your life that nags you, that thing that you have confessed, that you have brought to Jesus many times, and yet it still nags you. Satan still uses that to, to just needle into your heart and to really make you feel as though before Christ you don't have a clear conscience. And then I want you to think about this verse where it says that he's forgiven us all of our trespasses. How is it possible for that sin to still affect you, as far as God is concerned, when it says that all of our sins are forgiven? And to develop this thought just a little bit further, we want to see that second verse. It says this, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love verses with word pictures. And so here, what I want you to picture, what I want you to, to think about is the fact that God, in his omniscience, in the fact that he knows all things, he knows everything about you, there is, there was a record of debt that separated you from God. That record of debt was impossible for you to pay, and basically, it's a list, a journal of your sin. Can you imagine 
every sin which you have committed. Interestingly, on the Day of Atonement, the priest offered sacrifices for the unintentional sin of the people. They daily had to bring sacrifices, but then the priest, this Day of Atonement, was for the ones that they didn't even realize they had committed. Imagine the, the volumes that, they, that may fill in your life. This record of debt. And that record of debt is separation. That record of debt says, hey, you can't come into God's presence. You can't have fellowship with him if this stands between he and you. And the Bible says because of Jesus' shed blood, because of what he accomplished on the cross, if we place our faith and trust in Christ, that record is wiped clean. It's not wiped clean in the sense like, oh, we'll just pretend it never happened. That record is transferred from your account and was placed on the account of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. And so now when we place our faith and trust in him, that that record is taken, it's placed on Jesus, we stand before God with a clean slate. Completely clean. The record of sin has been transferred from us to Jesus. And Jesus took the punishment for that on the cross. But God says, that's cool, but I want to take it further. I want to give them more assurance. I want to, to really solidify that, 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 that conscience, that, that clarity and the confidence that they have in approaching me. And if we jump over to 2 Corinthians 5.21, we see this. For our sake, he, God, made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's a fantastic thing. Our record of debt was taken away. Our record of sin was placed on Jesus at the cross. He paid the price for that. But not only that, in that sacrifice that Jesus made, not only was there the removal of sin, but there was also the the offer of removal of sin and also the offer of what they call imputed righteousness. Or, in other words, taking Jesus' perfect character, nature, record, and placing that on our account. So not only is our sin removed, but Jesus' perfect character is placed on our record. Does Jesus have anything to be ashamed of before the Father? No. Absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. Jesus never sinned. He boldly is in the Father's presence because he is innocent. He is is able to be there because of his holiness. And when we place our faith and trust in him, that character, that righteousness is placed on our account so that we can have the same confidence in approaching God and approaching the presence of the Father. I don't know about you, um, but I'm a little bit of a, a visual learner. And so I thought if I could illustrate something for you today, I would. And if I'm trying to learn something, um, instead of reading, I normally will go to to YouTube or something along those lines so that I can learn. One of the things that I have learned that I need to learn is when I go out disc golfing, these guys are throwing the disc about twice as far as me. So instead of reading how to throw that disc a little further, I've been watching some videos, and hopefully the throws will get a little bit farther as the season progresses. Don't check back, because if I don't do good, I don't want you to know. (laughs) But here... We have these three jars uh, in front of us. This jar on the left. Should I pull this back if you guys can see? We won't go too far. There we go. 
may or may not have damaged carpet in my old church with this illustration, but we won't even talk about that. The jar on the left represents Jesus and his perfect nature and character. This jar in the middle represents sin. The fact that sin is in the world, uh, it is all around us, and it separates us from God. But if we really to take this illustration to, to a true form, we have to understand that not only is, is sin uh, all around us, but it's within us as well. And so we'll take this and we'll add a little sin to our lives. And because of our sin, and because of of the things that we have done, we are unable to enter into the presence of God. Yet today, on, on Good Friday, we're here to celebrate the fact that Jesus was the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Again, sin separates us. There's no fellowship. The old covenant was a constant reminder of the fact that there's no way for us to cleanse ourselves. There's no way for us to purify ourselves. There's no way to overcome the separation that sin brings for us. And then, if you look with me again, we see in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, it says this, Jesus entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, Jesus lived in the sinful world. And Satan wanted nothing more than to derail the plan of redemption. He wanted nothing more than to tempt Jesus, to call him uh, into sin and, and to, to just defile the perfect sacrifice. And Satan would tempt Jesus, and no matter how much he tempted him, Jesus never gave in. He never, ever chose to sin. He never attempted, never chose to disobey the Father. And by his blood... He offers the perfect sacrifice for sin by his own blood. And you know, I've read that verse a number of times, Hebrews 9, 12, and have passed by this phrase, by his own blood, um, many times. I mean, of course, who else's blood would it have been? It was his. But Kenneth Wiest, as I was reading this week and studying it, he, he brought out something that I had never really considered before. He worded something differently than I had ever seen it before. And those words, his own, in the original language, means a personal, private, unique ownership. But then he takes it a little further, and I just want to read this quote for you. It says this, Now the efficacy, which simply means the effectiveness, so the effectiveness of our Lord's blood rested not in the fact that it was human blood, but that it was human blood of a unique kind. It flowed in the veins of the one who was, as to his humanity, sinless, and as to his person, deity. So as a human being, he never sinned, and as his very nature and character, he is God. And the combination of these two, sinless humanity and deity, make it unique and effective. It was the only sacrificial blood that could be sprinkled on the mercy seat of, in the heaven, heavenly holy of holies, the only blood which the high court of heaven could accept as atonement for human sin. It was this blood poured out on Calvary's cross that gave Jesus access as high priest into the Holy of Holies. Again, on the cross, the Father put the full weight of the consequences of sin on his Son. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took the separation of sin, 
He took the condemnation of sin and did away with its consequences for all who believe in him. So let's continue that illustration just a little bit. So on the cross, Jesus takes the sin of the world. He takes the full consequence of sin, and all of the sin and its consequences was poured on Jesus on the cross. And he bore our sin, the perfect Lamb of God. And so now, sin is done away with. Sin is dealt with. There's nothing that separates us. But we have, an op- we have a responsibility. Christ has done the work. We have to receive it. We have to place our faith and trust in him. And when we do that, when we cry out to the Father and we say, please forgive me, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus is poured into our lives and we are are purified. We are made whole before the Father. And so folks, I think we really need to grasp that. You know, we really need to understand this is what has happened in your life if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, his sinless life, receiving all of our sin, receiving the full punishment, the full weight for our sin, bearing that penalty, he is able to forgive us, to purify our conscience before God. So we don't have to have any shame when we approach him. We don't have to have any hesitation that we're welcomed. We're welcomed with the same purity that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is is welcomed with. And so we see that Jesus, in the New Covenant, it reminded us or it it dealt with the separation of sin. Um, The New Covenant required a sacrifice. But you know what? It also brings satisfaction. As Christ died on the cross, that famous song, the wrath of God was satisfied on every sin on him, or every sin on him was laid. We have to be so thankful that he has dealt fully with our sin. The wrath of God satisfied. We never have to worry about, about any judgment. Nothing was left undone on the cross. Nothing was left incomplete. The whole burden of sin has been dealt with. As you picture the scene of the crucifixion, it's been a long six hours. During that time, Jesus has been nailed to the cross. The crowd has mocked him. The soldiers have sat at the base of the cross and gambled uh, for his, his clothing. One of the thieves that are crucified with him has mocked him. The other one has believed in him and has been assured that he would be with Jesus in paradise that very day. Jesus had cried out in lonely agony. The sky had gone black. It's been six hours, and now he can barely, he has barely enough strength to push himself up to get one more breath. And yet, as he comes to the end of his life in John 19.30, we see these three words. It is finished. Under the old system, it was never finished. Under the old system, there was this constant reminder. You would go and sacrifice at the temple in the morning. I don't know if this is true about you, but it's true about me. God brings something to my mind, and he, con- he convicts me of it. The Spirit convicts me of it. I confess it, and God, I will, you know, I'll turn from that. And then five hours later, sometimes 20 minutes later, I repeat that same sin. Do you imagine how frustrating that would have been under the old system? 
to, to bring your sacrifice to the temple and say to the, to the priest, I have committed this sin. Would you please offer this in my place? The sacrifice is made. You walk home, you walk in the door, and, and immediately something happens, and you're like, dang it. You'd have to be a real good sheep farmer because then you have to go get another sheep, and you've got to walk back to the tabernacle, and you have to offer another sacrifice for sin. Jesus, when he died on the cross, said it is finished. There's no more sacrifice. There's nothing left to do. You simply need to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and all of the requirement of sin has been dealt with. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Jesus shed his blood to offer his forgiveness for you. As we think about the satisfaction that that offers to us, let's just read those first, last few verses in, the, in Hebrews chapter 9. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hand, hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Three points of, of satisfaction here. Three points that, that will just help us to say, hey, what has Christ accomplished for me? What, is he, what has he done for me, and, and how does that satisfy me even now? The first is the satisfaction we have of Jesus being our representative. Verse 24, that Christ appears, tells us that Christ appears in the very presence of God for us. That's somebody that's great to have on your side, isn't it? As Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, as the accuser of the brethren, as Satan comes in and, and he could try to bring charges against you. Hey, God, have you seen this week? Just like he did with Job. Hey, you know, or even God said, hey, if you consider my servant Job, and, and, and Satan goes back and forth with God about Job. He could come and, and go back and forth with God about, about me, about you, and say, hey, you know, what about this? Look how Bruce failed you this week. Look at, look at the way that he lost his temper. Look at the way he, he did this thing or the way he talked to someone or, or whatever. That didn't reflect you well. That fell far short of your character, your nature. And that would be true about me, but because I have placed my faith and trust in Christ, the Father, the Son is advocating for me by the Father. Yep, he did commit that. But we've covered that. The sacrifice has been covered and my righteousness is placed on him. Not only that, Jesus is there and he's interceding for us with the Father. He's praying for us and, and he has lived this life. He faced the temptations we faced. He can intercede for us. Father, give them the strength to endure that temptation. Father, provide that way of escape. He is our advocate. He is there in God's presence for us. And secondly, we have the satisfaction of knowing that his sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. Again, there's nothing left to do. Just simply receive the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. 
And then finally, we have the satisfaction of peace at death. These words on the screen, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The reality is, at some point, our lives are going to end. And at the end of our lives, there is a judgment. And if we've placed our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no fear in that judgment. We can die in peace knowing that when we are in God's very presence, he has nothing to judge us for because the perfect righteousness of Christ is on our account. He has welcomed us fully into his family. But again, we need to go back to John 3.18. It says this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Today, you may be here, and you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, and we need to celebrate that. You could be watching online, you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, and you need to celebrate that. But the reality is, you may be here today, and you may not have placed your faith and trust in Christ. You may not have received that assurance of salvation by by placing your faith and trust in Christ, having your sins nailed to the cross and having the righteousness of Christ placed on your account. If you've not done that, the scripture is very clear. That separation of sin will continue throughout this life and into eternity. That you will spend an eternity separated from God in hell, facing the condemnation, the punishment for your sin. And God does not desire that. That's not his desire for his creation. It's not something that we would feel right not telling you about. And if you're here today and you've not received that, if you're watching online and you've not received that gift, I would encourage you right now just to cry out to God and say, God, I realize that I have sinned. I realize that that my sin separates me from you, but I also come to understand that Jesus has paid the full price for my sin. He has paid the penalty for my sin, and I ask, because of what Jesus has done for me, that you would forgive my sin, that you would purify me, welcome me into your family, and give me the assurance of eternal life. Those words don't have to be exact, but it's that admission of saying, I have sinned, and I need a Savior, and I understand that Jesus is the only way to have my sins forgiven. Today, if you've done that, if you're here with somebody, please let them know. Um, or if you're interested and you're like, I just, I, I get it, but I don't quite get it. I'd like to talk to somebody a little bit more. Please talk to me, talk to anybody that's greeting at the door, and they will certainly love to talk to you. Online, if you're watching and you're, you're just like, man, I, I, I need to do this. Let us know. Put a comment on the, on the social media feed. Somebody will respond to you. Um, you know, and we just want you to, to know that we will reach out to you. And we will reach out to you. And if you have questions, we would love to answer those questions. So today we've seen the new covenant. We've seen the, the, the separation that, that, that the new covenant repaired. We've seen the sacrifice that it required. And we see the satisfaction that it brings. And I hope that you are truly satisfied in Christ, that you have placed your faith and trust in him. As we end our, our Good Friday service, we are going to uh, celebrate communion together. Um, This is uh, what Jesus instituted that night before he was arrested, the day before he was crucified, the night before he was crucified. And he took the cup and the bread, said, this body, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. 
We're going to do things a little bit differently this morning uh, during communion. Oftentimes, we, we sort of just read through the, the sequence and take the bread at a specific time, take the juice at a specific time. But today, we've asked the band to come, and, and they're going to play. They're going to play a song that's become one of my favorites, uh, Behold the Lamb, all right? And as you, as you think about these words, as you meditate on the words as they'll be on the screen, I would just encourage you to meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus and what it's accomplished for you. And then, at whatever point you feel ready and, and, and able, you just take the wafer, eat the wafer in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus. Same with the juice. Whenever, you know, you, you feel that you're ready, just peel that juice back, you know, drink it, and just be reminded and thankful of the shed blood of Jesus. And at the end of the song, I'll come back up and we'll close in prayer. I want to read one last passage of Scripture with you. I didn't give the guys a slide. just want to read it for you. Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 